Hello and welcome to Psychology in Mind, Episode 5. Are psychedelics good for you? Psychedelic drugs, are they the gateway to greater self-knowledge, an enhanced appreciation of the natural world and deeper empathy and interpersonal connections? Or are they merely a risky doorway into schizophrenia and mental illness? Today we look at some of the psychological research into psychedelics and speak with Alexander Lenches, am I pronouncing that right? That's correct. Of the Irish Psychedelic Society. Can we have a productive discussion or will the incommensurability of academic psychology and the psychedelic consciousness reduce us to gibbering stoned apes? Find out in the latest episode of Psychology in Mind. I'm Gareth Stack, writer and broadcaster, and I'm joined as always by Andrew Allen, doctor, researcher, man about town. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and as I said, Alexander, welcome to the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, what you do, and what's your interest in psychedelics? Oh, sure. Um, well, so I'm Alexander Lentius, and um, I've just moved uh, to Ireland um, last September, actually, from the UK. 15 years in the UK, and before that, uh, I was born and raised in the Netherlands, so I'm Dutch. Um, uh, what is it I do? Uh, I'm an animation producer uh, by trade. Um, so this is mainly uh, children's media and uh, cartoons and um, uh, things like 4D, uh, 3D ride films for theme parks. And uh, my, my hobbies include um, mysticism and research into psychedelics and, and of course also use of psychedelics. So that's a um, a big transition from, from, you know, lots of people use psychedelics, whether casually or as part of self-exploration. Um, but to, to become um, involved to the extent where you're interested in the literature, what for you is the, what's that pathway? Yes, well, so um, as um, an, um, an expert in stereoscopic 3D um, animation production, um, I had already been uh, reading an, uh, as much as I could about the psychology of vision and about um, how, how we perceive as human beings that um, vision is not just uh, having two eyes as cameras uh, uh, and the sick signal coming in from the eyes is uh, purely processed by the brain. What happens is that there's an awful lot of psychology involved and memory and uh, other processes that are very mysterious still. Um, and so uh, at some point in time, about uh, seven years ago, um, I started asking questions about did the ancient Egyptians um, view in stereoscopic 3D like we did? And because I can see very little uh, visual evidence on the, in their art um, that they could see a perspective, understood perspective, and even saw in stereoscopic 3D. So I started researching ancient Egypt, and this can be a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, I very, very quickly um, was drawn towards the uh, mystical aspects and the religious aspects of the uh, ancient Egyptians. And um, I started formulating a, a, a hypothesis, personal hypothesis, that the reason why the Egyptians were depicting people flat and in profile and not with any depth or perspective was that um, they uh, had such reverence for the gods they were depicting that they wanted to depict them uh, in an abstract manner, uh, almost like language, uh, rather than um, having an artist give his or her personal vision of what the god looks like. So, so you think they, they may have had... If they wanted to, they could have had the technical 
accomplishment to do like renaissance like perspective if yes. they wanted to but they chose not to and there are there are portraits uh, from egypt and sculptures which are easily at the standard of greece or, or rome in terms of um photorealistic portraiture and uh, uh, uh sculptures of um, i think there's one of nefertiti in in uh, in berlin in in the the egyptian museum there but as you say they're not of gods which has never occurred to me before Indeed, and um, because what I've seen is that in early uh, Greek art uh, and Roman art, you do see use of perspective. So um, I started to feel that what we're being taught in school about people did not understand perspective or could not draw perspective is uh, kind of a lazy explanation or maybe a, a misconception. Kind of like the idea that people thought the world was flat until Columbus. Yeah, personally, I believe that Egyptians were world world faring and were doing trade uh, around the world as well. And they were very well aware of uh, the, the world being round. But um, maybe the common farmer thought the world was flat. Who knows? I'm just curious um, about um, the idea of like hyperspace or, you know, uh, dimensions kind of say the um, fourth dimension, for example, like, you know, the I don't know if you've seen the Carl Sagan video, there's a very nice clip of him on YouTube talking about um, how, you know, mathematically we can think about, um, say, a fourth dimension in space. So say a tesseract, for example, is say a four dimensional hypercube. Or have you? I kind of have only recently, I've only relatively recently heard about it. But um, I'm just curious: Do you think there is some potential for for things like psychedelic experiences and so forth to, to help people try to visualize that? Because people can think about it mathematically, but it's it's extremely difficult to, to try to visualize something like that when we kind of tend to perceive the world around us in three dimensions. You bring up a very good point there, um, because uh, something like a hypercube or a tesseract is. Um, a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional concept okay. and this is exactly what psychedelics can do for us and do for us is they show us a higher dimensional realities um, that are then almost impossible to put into words or visuals once you come back down from the psychedelic experience uh, you can talk and talk and talk and you can you can make movies and you can draw and you can try to put it down on paper but Unless you actually experience this yourself um, through um, psychedelics, but also through uh, deep meditation or um, other maybe trance states where you can get to this uh, vibrational level or, or state where you can experience something like higher dimensions or higher dimensional concepts. Um, uh, unless you experience it yourself you, you can't really never really put your finger on it um, on, on paper mm -hmm. or, or on a screen i believe mm -hmm. so i'm an advocate for you know everybody should have experienced this at least once um uh like uh, take some mushrooms or ayahuasca or uh peyote um and experience this and then let's talk again about this subject so so let's take a little bit of a zoom out and we can we can come back to the the uh, experience the phenomenology of psychedelics and what you've personally gained and your kind of ideas i know you've had a lot of ideas with storytelling and the engagement with the audience and things like that um uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics and alexander you're welcome to come in and correct us when we get some of these things wrong but um just from from a little bit of research it's there's there does seem to be strong evidence that human beings have been using a psychedelics 
uh, at least as far back as 9,000 years ago. So that's the end of the Stone Age. Uh, we're talking the, the beginning of the um, of the development of technology beyond basic primitive stone tools. Um, there's uh, evidence of cultivation of psychedelics and, uh, you know, things like uh, um, evidence of peyote bu- uh, buttons and um, psilocybin mushrooms in um, in caves where, where early pre- pre-modern humans um, lived. We'll uh, debate uh, young earth creationism on the next episode. <laughs> yeah, that's, we're going to have a, a young earth run. Um, so as you as you kind of said before we got onto the show, we were talking a little bit about um, what is a psychedelic, and you mentioned that that there there in in a certain sense. Um, any any substance can be viewed as having psychedelic properties well not any substance but things like as innocuous as caffeine or sugar or alcohol yeah. um, altering your state of consciousness right. people forget that uh, whenever they ingest any food any plants they're basically uh, as i would say communing with the plants the plant has energetic information and uh, it it comes into our system and uh, as when people change their diets they notice a change in their psychology and when you're fasting you really notice that suddenly uh, a lot of voices that were there before in your head uh, will disappear and you start to reconnect to a core of of your original self so there's a diff a kind of a visceral response to it like at the uh, well, I, I believe that whatever food you ingest has has a certain voice in it, uh, energetic property, um, especially meat can be very strong in terms of filling your head with with certain ideas. Well, that that's quite a transpersonal perspective, and yes. and there's a lot of um, a lot of people have articulated that um, um, in the psychodynamic sphere, but it's certainly something that would contradict with the sort of entirety of how academic psychology perceives the world uh, even even in the broader sense that we now understand obviously um our gut bacteria affect consciousness and how we how the food we consume does affect our consciousness but i suppose in the in the academic psychology uh, and you can correct me here andrew in in that world it, it's more perceived as a you know a, a neurochemical neurobiological effect and it, let's say if you ingest a substance you know um that makes you sick it, it's not perceived as a some sort of connection between the consciousness of the substance and you it's a it's a very straight you take the substance it impacts your your biochemistry your brain releases a chemical uh, you, you have a perception yeah well um of course there's the the, the chemical the, the the physical uh element there whatever process takes place mm-hmm. uh, but there's the experiential side as well and i think it this this goes back to john locke and the primary qualities and secondary qualities uh um where where locke would say something like um um, how you feel about something is a secondary quality. How you experience the world is a secondary quality. But the primary quality is what is the color, what is the size, what kind of atoms is it made of. Yeah. Uh, but we never experience atoms as human beings. Yeah, I mean, there's always kind of a phenomenology yeah, yeah. to it. Like, I kind of, I'm not quite sure you're phrasing it. Yeah, there was kind of, you might have a sense of, yeah, the food you ingest having some kind of conveying sort of meaning, which obviously from a more kind of skeptical uh, academic perspective might be yeah um yeah that would always kind of be viewed through a quite a skeptical lens sure it se- seems like you're making a stronger claim there though and I, we're not mm. trying to rake you over the close okay. of skepticism or anything like that but i just i want to kind of pin it down because i think it's an interesting thing to talk about so there's a difference between acknowledging that we only ever perceive the world and our senses are not 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 even just gateways to perception but they're they're the form of perception and we can never understand the reality of the formless or that that's that's all something that you can argue about from a very skeptical rationalist point of view but i think you're talking about something 
which goes beyond that, which is sort of you, you mentioned the consciousness of a plant or the experience of a plant. So do, do you think that's that's literally and directly true or is that an allegory for the experience? Uh, from um, from my experience, um, I would say there is literally a consciousness in the plant. And um, you can notice this in the difference between um, a, a chemical psychoactive drug like LSD or um, a plant-based uh, uh, psychoactive like ayahuasca that in, in, in the plant-based psychoactive there is a, a personality there there's a voice there whereas the LSD is purely you and 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 your psychology mm-hmm. that comes into play so um, all, the, all the all the kind of godfathers of of uh, of uh, psychoactive drugs uh, talk about this the, the, the voice in in the plant and the spore-based psychoactives over the chemical psychoactives that there is a distinct difference there um and uh, from my experience um it is is there's a very very strong personality there strong character there of course maybe it's just awakening a character within me and a a psychological trait within me uh, Mm. but because the stories are uh, roughly um, the same for for a lot of people who use psychedelics like um, uh, ayahuasca or mushrooms they they meet very similar uh, entities characters consciousnesses yeah i mean i mean i would be obviously i would my own views and again we're not trying to rake people with goals would would, i would have a skeptical attitude to that but when you mention kind of academic thought i would say maybe someone who's sometimes kind of more towards the fringes of academic thought david chalmers has kind of I'm not sure what his current thought is, but he has kind of advocated some kind of pan-psychism view that there's a continuum of consciousness where there's some kind of, you know, maybe some kind of quasi-consciousness maybe and kind of um, as you move kind of more basic living organisms or what have you. But I think maybe there's a more general point about kind of altering you can alter your consciousness in some small way with with say coffee or chocolate or what have you i suppose again there's kind of a continuum there as as you have a you know you might have something very dramatic with something like lsd whereas with something like coffee alcohol it's still strongish like you can feel intoxicated and then you can kind of move down the, the scale to where it's like coffee where it's you're slightly more energetic or something or but chocolate that, I mean, that or brings us so to, to yeah. this discussion of set and setting because you know for alcohol might have a mild effect on consciousness when you're used to taking it but there, there's a famous anec- anecdotal stories about um columbus's uh, men introducing native americans to alcohol and their their initial um, use of it being quite ceremonial and relaxed and then seeing how Columbus's men acted drunken and violent they're taking on those behaviors so so much of how how we are influenced by the by the experience of a chemical is about how we expect to be experienced what the culture is around it and how how sensitive we are so when we're drinking we're not sitting there introspecting about how our consciousness is affected by it but well, speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> but that's very much what we're going to do when we take if, if, if i give you a, a, a substance at a party and i say andrew this is going to change your life sit there on the couch close your eyes you're, you're going to be aware of your those, those consciousness changes in the same way that you're not when you have a coffee uh, despite the fact that it might yeah. coffee might well be changing this your is consciousness. true uh, absolutely, uh, uh, there's a, there's a lot of that culture. But when it comes to a psychedelic, it's undeniable. You are, <laughs> you are, you cannot walk away from that. You're, you're there. You're in hyperspace. <laughs> it's probably it is potentiated. I suppose when people take, if people are taking something LSD or some similar substance in a therapeutic context, if it's being used as an add-on to say psychotherapy, then that ties into your point that people are going to be introspecting deeply you know more about their lives at the same time so there's 
so they kind of feed off the two things feed off each other like there's a, there's an interesting uh, uh third alternative uh which is more like the rupert sheldrake um morphogenic field theory which is that uh our bodies are quantum antennae to information that is in a field around us maybe the electromagnetic field around the planet so this is a receptive consciousness rather than yes, producing consciousness exactly. a non-local consciousness uh, which I'm a, a big fan of that idea. And it, it could well be in the, uh, um, that uh, uh, we are these antennae that are tuned into a particular frequency, and that's our current um, awareness, our current consciousness. And this could also be how people can then remember past lives because they're picking up on this particular frequency I think we're 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 t- t- taking ah, the good ship yes. uh, to- uh, okay, to- right. totally. But so what a psychedelic uh, what a psychedelic can potentially be doing is um, tuning you into a different frequency completely. So yeah. suddenly, yeah, you're I mean, not I'm, there anymore. So yeah, I just because you know I, th- I think you know I would again I'd be coming from quite a different worldview. So I'm quite a good materialist as someone who's interested in psychology or or, or neuroscience or whatever. But um, it's just when you mentioned about kind of quantum stuff as well, it's making me wonder, like, should should it be psychologists and psychiatrists who, who dabble in this stuff or physicists to kind of think about hyperspace? Or, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Or, um, yeah. Well, this is, this is a strong tradition of physicists and chemists using psychedelics, particularly LSD, to come up with um, new insights, which is something maybe we'll touch on later. And um, I suppose there, just to get back to this idea of the whether there is a transpersonal consciousness imbibed, there is maybe a synthetic position um, between the entirely materialist, it's just chemistry and this um we are literally communing with a with a plant idea which is to say that um there's a parsimonious idea about consciousness that um it is easier for it to be true and more likely to be true that for example emotions and, and consciousness um exist because they are useful rather than because they're epiphenomenal as many scientists kind of seem to consider today uh, and if that being the case we can acknowledge that it's more likely that animals have emotions uh, than they just act like they're experiencing emotions when they lose their owner or something it's just more more parsimonious and if you follow that train of thought it certainly seems to be true that there, there is plant communication, there's plant memory, and it's it's simpler to imagine that that's mediated by a consciousness of some kind than all of these things occur separately and consciousness is a higher emergent property. And if all that's the case, then it's certainly possible when, when we collectively think, when we, when we sing together as people, when we engage in collective action like dance, that there is synchronization of brain function and and, and that, that, that that is a synchronization of consciousness in, in a direct sense that we are literally experiencing similar things we all come from the same um, the same uh, adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine base chemicals. So that the, the composition and our evolutionary tree would 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 indicate that there is a commonality of experience. So whether or not there's a sort of a uh, energistic transfer, it's quite possible that there are aspects of the experience of a substance that you could uh, imbibe and take on through the the sort of the indirect stimulation of common shared neurobiological pathways even with a plant absolutely um and i'm open to um uh uh, both uh, viewpoints um and and uh, i like to think that at some point um maybe even the materialist scientists will uh will will discover um maybe a very subtle form of energy that explains all of all of this weirdness that I'm talking about <laughs> uh, and, and, and takes consciousness a little bit further than just inside the brain. And just to uh, say, I would love 
for that to be the case. I just, <laughs> I just don't see anything in our current understanding of physics. Not that I'm a physicist, but my, you know, my layperson's understanding of it, that would indicate that that there's sort of any connection between that perspective and and where we are now. Yeah, uh, there, well, there is, there is a lot of research. Um, I, I, I would urge the listeners of your program to uh, look up YouTube channel uh, "New Thinking Aloud" by Jeffrey Mishlov. Um, is that spelled A L O U D or? New, new thinking aloud. Okay. Oh, yes. uh, A-L-O-U-D. Okay. Yeah, not, 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 not forbidden. Ah, uh, no, but that's a wordplay. <laughs> yeah. And this, he's got uh, very senior um, doctors, neuroscientists who have started exploring these kinds of realms of thought, uh, shared consciousness and past life experience and psychedelics and all very, very senior uh, research people. Um, and um, just check it out, have a look, and um, um, you know, it, 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 you start thinking, wait a minute, there is research, but there is also a lot of uh, dogma and there's a lot of taboo. Uh, and uh, you know, serious scientists can't talk about this stuff, you know. Yeah, there's a big, yeah, there's a big, that's a whole area in itself. And- I suppose might be touching on that kind of the history yeah. of, I suppose, as you move into the 20th century, kind of in the history of psychedelics, that's uh, something that's come up in terms of like kind of the kind of around the kind of the mid 20th century. There was kind of an awful lot of research being done into stuff like LSD in that, in um, particularly kind of in a psychiatric context, seeing if it could be used to treat various sort of psychiatric conditions, which... Um, I suppose partly there was a kind of a socio-political context where like in the 60s, psychedelics got very much associated with the kind of counterculture figures. And of course, there was kind of a reaction against that, um, which is why, you know, you can you can you you can see why the legislative context around certain drugs uh, might not correlate very well with um, the actual kind of a more clear headed view of harm. So I, I touched on this somewhere in the notes. So there was um, mm. David uh, Nutt, who was... Um, who has become, I suppose, quite a, arguably, perhaps, perhaps he shouldn't be as controversial as he is, but he has become quite a controversial figure uh, within psychopharmacology. So he had uh, quite a famous paper in uh, The Lancet where he was doing what you, I think it's called like a, a Delphi consensus. So basically they were getting together a lot of various experts from, from a number of different disciplines. So say um, psychiatrists who were working in addiction or then pharmacologists, etc. And they were trying to, to put together, well, let's actually think of some of the main criteria for, for drug harm. So be that in terms of uh, social harm so say in terms of if say if people are kind of act, kind of misbehaving when they're on a drug or whatever say so you know I suppose alcohol might actually be kind of a mm-hmm. uh, within the western world could be kind of an, could be taken as quite a good example of that or then in terms of the risk for dependence of drug and then in terms of say physiological damage to the person or psychological damage and so on and there did seem to be kind of a disconnect between say within the UK legislation what was considered say a class A drug class B class C or kind of something like alcohol or tobacco. So there wasn't really a correlation between, um, or the, there wasn't really a great correlation between how harmful this kind of panel of experts felt that different drugs were and how uh, how strict the legislation against them was or kind of sentencing or how, how much police effort was being put into it. And now David, and if you read the paper like David, I mean, David Nutt doesn't try to, um, he doesn't try to airbrush out the damage that, that drugs can do to some people. Like, so he does kind of indicate that, that it is a public health issue. Like, you know, there are, you know, issues around, say, uh, tobacco or, or alcohol, given how widely available they are. Um, 
So, but I, the consequences for David Nutt, he wasn't just writing a paper, he was also on the advisory council. In fact, he was the head of the advisory council in the UK for um, a, an evidence-based approach under under the Labour government uh, to, to drug legalisation or prohibition. And he was fired, essentially, and his research was, was rubbish, despite being kind of, at, at, at least on a methodological level, very clearly uh, good work. So he, he, he sort of had, he, there, was, there was this, um, starting in the 90s, going to the, to the 2000s in the UK, there was this move towards evidence-based drug policy and it was basically thrown out not under and, conservatives but before that and it's bizarre that. that there is no evidence for um, uh, psychedelic mushrooms being uh, damaging or dangerous in any way it's it's uh, on the scale it's the least harmful drug of them all i think it didn't well i think lsd probably didn't come out at the very bottom like in terms of the substances that were considered yeah. under that i think with any drugs i mean with any drugs there are risks i, th- I think if there's if there's one that kind of message i want to put out like on this is that you know as with anything with drugs you have to look at kind of any risks costs and benefits to yeah. two things and sure. you have to sure. come to a balance like yeah. about yeah mm-hmm. now uh, uh, i just wanted to uh, because i never actually completed the sure, link sure, between sure. my research into uh, egyptology and, and uh, psychedelics um <laughs> 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 uh, uh, it i um i brought it up because um what happens with um, large dose psychedelic use is you start getting um, uh, what you could call uh, spiritual experiences and God experiences and cosmic experiences. And you get these these voices and these images saying this is how reality works and this is the algorithm that drives it. And this is how creation went and this is how the earth was was produced. And maybe it's all fanciful, but still you get this uh, enormous uh, spiritual experience uh, that um, people have been chasing for millennia. Um, And I I link it to spirituality um, strongly because uh, I already had a lot of experience with uh, meditation, uh, mysticism, uh, a bit of magic, a bit of this, bit of that. I tried a lot of different things and when you get to a certain deep level, um, these kinds of visuals start coming up. Um, and um, what I found is that psychedelics are like a comp- an, an elevator, like a rocket uh, ship, uh, right directly to the source, where you don't have to meditate for 80 years uh, to get to this place, wherever that is, whether it's just in my head or whether it's in hyperspace or you know whether it is actually a cosmic voice talking to me. But I think that that raises a really interesting point, and it's something that I've um, I don't want to go into really to my own experiences too much. But I I feel like it's often lost in discussions. We were talking about Terence McKenna earlier off off uh, mic, but it's often lost in discussions of psychedelics um, that what what the experience uh, given is very much related to what's brought to it. In the same sense that if someone becomes a visual artist and they've never drawn before, all of their other uh, interests and ideas about the world will come into the visual art um, so what do I mean by that um, what I mean very specifically is you know someone uh, who's you know 18 years old uh, at a party and does LSD or who's you know 50 years old and has worked as an accountant their whole life and 
has you know no imaginatory inner life this is obviously not a real person this is postulating this person who has no interesting life at all i should say i'm married to an accountant here. So. <laughs> yeah. but but um, what i'm trying to say is that you know someone someone is not going to automatically have a deeply insightful mystical spiritual experience that provides them uh real or imagined insights into the constructed nature of reality perception and so on it's very much about what you bring to it what you bring yeah to like it. an example like i've done meditation before and often but i was kind of working within kind of a more therapeutic context not so much trying to alter consciousness as such but rather trying trying to uh, kind of be in that kind of headspace where you know say things are happening that kind of stress you out or make you feel angry that you're kind of looking at you're kind of looking within and trying to be less affected by it on an emotional level so that would be kind of a context where you're not going for that kind of maybe deeper spiritual or kind of religious I thought it was and it's in, I suppose spirituality and religion aren't necessarily the, the same thing but I thought it was no. interesting that you touched on kind of creation thoughts about creation of the world like when people say in yeah. this Egyptology like does perhaps some ideas about the creation of the, the universe go back, go back to I don't know, you know psychedelic uh, experience uh, the, the what the mushrooms are always on about uh this kind of algorithm <laughs> that uh, is basically you know like a fractal algorithm that drives everything that happens in this reality but also in the uh entire 12 dimension or nine dimensional quantum foam if you want to call it that uh which if you if you then look at it from the outside it's like a it looks like a flower basically is what a lot of uh, psychonauts talk about this the chrysalis the flower um uh, of hyperspace of all dimensions kind of constantly growing like an enormous fractal that without without limitation but it is one formula and uh what the uh, mushroom keeps saying is uh that um it, it has either figured out how that works and it's trying to communicate that um or it is that I- itself uh, and this and and it's 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 offering itself i don't know but there's it's worth it's worth pointing out that that there is a there is a cellular cellular automata theory of the entire nature of mathematical and physical reality uh, articulated in the book a new kind of science um, which is very it's controversial but it building building the entire universe in a fractal way from very simple formula incredibly simple equations that iterate into everything i'm because i i want to steer away from creationism because uh you know i I, i'm (laughs) not not one for that at all whatsoever (laughs) but um what 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 some something like the mushroom says is um it uh, there is an algorithm driving it but there's also a a consciousness uh behind that Mm. to steer that algorithm in a in a a creative way that it has a consciousness yes there's will there's there is there is will there is consciousness it's interesting it's just interesting the way you talk about it in terms of the phenomenology like i don't know how many listeners have actually kind of dabbled in psychedelics but the fact that you talk about the drug itself as kind of talking to you as if Mm. it has its own voice and Mm. i mean i would be i would be of the view that um under these altered states of consciousness it's still essentially your own voice or a different kind of it's altered your way of thinking so that it's it's essentially your the the drug is making your voice speak in a way that it hasn't done before but i thought it was interesting for people to think about what what it feels like that they can feel like this is a, an, out, an outer voice which yes, it could is. be and but it 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 then activates that part of you that you mm. didn't know was there and just just yeah. to address that i think um so you have a very that's a very um mechanistic perspective um and and my perspective would be that yes it, it is an endogenous experience but that there so so to take the human being 
in in reality the person floating in reality we're, we have a an ecological world that we fit into we have a social world that we're built from just as much as our ecological world and what something like a psychedelic experience from in, in my perspective would be doing is allowing you to perceive aspects of your somatic your physical body uh, your neurochemistry your visual system which are just as real and primal and adaptive uh, as the inner voice you're talking about but but completely of a different nature and kind so in the same way that say picasso had this insight when he's painting and developing cubism that the visual system is not showing you this photorealistic image that we were trying to captivate in in, in classical art but actually um uh, lines edges shadows fields movement and he's able to then bring that into a representation which is three-dimensional so we can go oh actually when we look at or, or Monet or Matisse or any of these painters in the same way what, you, what you're perceiving is not not hearing a different voice but you know in a, in a verbal way or in a just seeing a picture it's literally inhabiting aspects of your perception which are fundamentally different and yet exist all the time and are real and important as well uh, and that's obviously quite different from what you were talking about Alexander but but still kind of I think you put it well. Yes, yes. I, I, uh, I suppose from the mechanistic perspective, even just thinking about how psychedelics work in the brain or, or their pharmacology, I mean, um, there are various, there are different types of psychedelics and it's not like they're all pharmacologically the same. So I think, you know, there is that important thing of trying to tap into the phenomenology. So, I mean, a lot of um, psychedelics, I mean, kind of the main thinking would be that they target, say, serotonergic uh, receptors that would then have a knock-on effect on kind of glutamate, which is this sort of um, activating kind of neurochemical, which could then activate kind of regions of the brain that are associated, say, with perception, like visual perception and so on. And then the fact that they're being activated in a manner that's different from usual waking consciousness starts to kind of, it bleeds into these kind of, um, this altered state of consciousness, which which, uh, which then kind of brings about some of the, the kind of the subjective kind of experience we're talking about but you know the fact that these these drugs aren't all pharmacologically identical you know i think it is you know or factors like that kind of make it important to kind of talk about kind of the subjective experience as well right, to try right. and it's not tie it's not the story all the same. together like it's not all the same and it's not uh it's not experientially the same the risks aren't the same and the 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 mechanism of action isn't the same so that, which brings us back to what you were talking about with the the difference between plant and uh, synthetic. Yes, and I, I uh, I'm of the opinion that when it's plant based, it, you can almost not go wrong. Uh, I feel that uh, if you take too much, you'll just puke it out. Or um, <laughs> yes, well, uh, yeah, well, ayahuasca, for example, is people usually kind of. Yeah, well, but, throw up like the first time they. Of check. course, with ayahuasca, there is the issue of the uh, MAO inhibitor, um, mm. um, monoamine oxidase mm. uh, inhibition, which takes away the protective uh, layer around your pineal gland, so that if you then drink coffee or alcohol or even eat a banana, you could die. So, uh, ayahuasca is is incredibly strong and potent and. Um, you have to fast for two days at least before just to make sure your system is completely clear um, and not to endanger yourself Um, and yes um, um, there are of course people who don't observe that uh, protocol and might endanger themselves yeah i think polypharmacy is always kind of uh, is always a (laughs) 
a major issue. So we, when it, if you talk about the the risks of a drug in isolation, you know, it's a totally different story if you're taking other if you're taking other kind of substances at, at the same time. I mean, I work a lot with with older adults as well. Like, and just in a medical context, like it's a, there's a whole issue around how many drugs some uh, older patients can be prescribed if they have multi multimorbidity if they have you know a number of different conditions but I, mean, I suppose it's another issue for another day like but it's it's worth yeah. pointing out though that um the early um antidepressants were also moa inhibitors mm-hmm. and uh, people would have these experiences where they would you know be on relatively innocuous doses eat a big cheese wheel and die so so it's uh, it's not exclusive to the realm of psychedelics this kind of risk of uh, interactions but but something like ayahuasca is is um uh, not uh, it's not a party drug it's not a drug it's it's a it's a very serious and it should be supervised um, and you should have um, be know exactly what you're doing when you're doing it uh, ideally with people who know what they're what they're doing as well i think this is part where you andrew you're talking about the legislative um thrust against drugs coming from the 1960s and i think some of that came because the vintners and the tobacco companies who produce these soporific drugs are very powerful certainly in ireland vintners uh, stand in the way of any kind of drug legalization or, or probe uh, the end of prohibition um but also there was a lot of really um uh, unethical uh, foolish behavior so we have the the merry pranksters driving around america dosing people often without their knowledge you know as is as is articulated in the electric acid kool-aid test uh, but you know that this was something sorry. that happened people I did yeah, yeah, uncle sorry. uncle uh a legislation uh you know there's there's a good case to be made for legislation of psychedelics but uh medicinal use or uh used by uh, seasoned psychonauts uh, that should not be criminalized <laughs> yes yeah, so, i mean i think there has been um there has been kind of somewhat maybe renaissance is a bit too strong a word to use but there has been a renewed interest i think in use of psychedelic drugs perhaps in the broad sense of the term and and, and their use within for example psychiatry so like david nutt who i mentioned earlier in terms who had done this this big analysis now as i say i'm not i'm not an authority on delphic analysis so i can't speak to how great that 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 uh, analysis of drug harm was but he's also he was also running a, a small trial looking at um people with kind of severe depression and uh, mdma or, or ecstasy like uh, as uh doing a small trial to see whether that could have a beneficial effect uh in patients with uh, major depression yeah so i mean he has done some interesting kind of it's, it's more or less pilot data now so um i mean the part of the as I'm sure David Nutt would say himself, like it's, it's a lot of challenges in, in order to get a study like this up and running. But he did do a small kind of open label trial with like 12 patients where he found like, uh, I think it was like nine of them showed kind of improvement when they, they used MDMA. Um, so obviously because of the challenges done in this, though often the methodology within the 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 research that's being done, it's not really kind of gold standard methodology. So if you're like a big drum, drug company doing some, you know, uh, randomized control trial, you can have like a double blinded placebo controlled uh, trial with like hundreds of patients. Whereas this was a very small study upon, it's kind of hard to kind of draw any kind of strong conclusions from from this kind of research. But it's interesting nonetheless that this kind of, um, these kind of questions are kind of starting to be explored. Somewhat. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually quite an outrage that if you can see that there is potential for 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 good coming from uh, the use of psychedelics in in uh, psychotherapy 
to to then completely outlaw it and not even allow any research into it is is outrageous uh as as a species we should be well above and beyond that uh it's very childish behavior in a way yeah so i mean it's kind of it's starting to happen but it's yeah. it's obviously there's a, it's a lot harder to do this kind of research yeah because of various but it's it's worth pointing out that there is a obviously people have been researching with psychedelics since the early 1950s and there is a very strong body of work now you can point out methodological issues like small sample size this is the biggest one but there is a sort of a very very uh, strong amount of evidence that lsd for example in the treatment of chronic alcoholism is very effective as in more effective than any other intervention um, there, um mdma was used in couples counseling to great effect uh, in public in the in the 1980s and early 90s and secretly by many psychotherapists after that point so that there is a there is a it's more than just we now use ketamine and treating depression and small kind of studies david nutt has done there's actually a a large body of work um which which sort of ended in in with prohibition in the 70s and is now coming coming back but as as andrew said there are there are difficulties with with large-scale studies psychedelics especially because pre-existing conditions if you know and so on you don't want to be giving uh, a psychedelic to someone who has propensity towards schizophrenia or you know so on so on so and obviously with the legal issue but but it's not as though we're operating in a vacuum either there are yes lots of so yeah there had been quite yeah there has there was quite a lot of research done as you said maybe around the middle of, of the 20th century and there were were kind of methodological flaws but there is clearly but there's, there's methodological uh, of any research done yes. in the 1950s it does seem unfortunate like as, as alexander was saying that we can't kind of kind of take the methods of today and you know try and investigate these questions in a, a clearer kind of sense um but you mentioned ketamine as well so I, I don't know if that's that might not be considered a classical an archetypical sort of uh, psychedelic as such but i i was involved in uh research uh, that was looking at uh, ketamine in treatment resistant depression so this was in a, uh, patients with with uh, major depression who had failed, who had you know been through talking therapy or fa- and failed, and I do you know they'd failed to respond to at least uh, two uh, trials of of more kind of first line uh, antidepressants. So things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So these are targeting uh, the serotonergic system uh, as well. Um, but um, so what we were looking at was looking at. Uh, patients taking a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. So ketamine can be used as, as an anesthetic, um, but in, at sub-anesthetic doses, it has been associated with uh, antidepressant effects. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that um, these kind of first-line antidepressants, like uh, the SSRIs I mentioned, uh, they can often take a number of weeks to, to kind of take hold. Um, where and then the the effect is usually more kind of it lasts longer as you keep taking. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't respond to these 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 drugs. Hence, you have these kind of treatment-resistant patients where who were entered into this uh, ketamine trial. Uh, ketamine, unlike the, the kind of first-line antidepressants, has a very rapid effect. So often you can see antidepressant effects within a matter of hours uh, rather than a, a matter of weeks. But it's faster but shorter-acting mm-hmm. antidepressant effect. Uh, so can, can, I, just, can I ask you, um, what's the, is there any perceived, like you say, sub-anesthetic dose, but is there any kind of experiential? Because be, be, the reason I ask is because um tradi- like a lot of the research into the efficacy of psychedelics um in treating depression or anything else it, it talks about the experience being the action so yes. it's it's not that there's or not exclusively that there's a chemical reaction it's that the person goes through an experience is that true in, in the case of ketamine or is it just a, a neurobiological action yeah so i mean yeah i mean we, we could talk more about 
neurobiology stuff. I might I might come back to that in a sec. But yeah, the, the to 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 address your question, yeah, in terms of the subjective effects. So yeah, it's a some anesthetic dose, and there would be um, in this trial there would have been an, an anesthetist uh, on on board as well. So it was all carefully controlled. But in terms of subjective effects, ketamine is associated with the dissociative effect. Uh, so it's kind of this sense that you're in some way being distanced from yourself. So obviously there's a lot of interest, as I say, in the neurobiological stuff, but there is a case to be made and other people have made it that um, this distancing from the self might be somewhat similar uh, to what you do in, say, mindfulness meditation. Yes, non-attachment. So, yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So, exactly. for example, if, if I were doing uh, mindfulness meditation, I might encourage people to kind of think about, uh, or I might, in terms of doing it myself, say, I might think about, um, say, something that stresses me out and then try to see it as something that's kind of distanced from my. Uh, there's some sense of subjective distance from it so there could be something within this, this uh, kind of subjective property of, of ketamine that has this kind of antidepressant effect potentially is it, sorry. So is it also not the case that uh, uh, brain scans show that people on LSD or on, on, on mushrooms that the whole of the brain is uh, activated uh, very similar to um, Buddhist monks who are in deep meditation where all of the brain is active um, at once and new neurological pathways are, are being uh, fabricated by the brain as well I haven't seen direct comparisons uh, of those two particular groups but I think there's a number of things you tap on firstly kind of brain networks so kind of a, a number of different regions of the brain being activated so like the default mode network I think is uh, kind of a network of different regions within the brain that would be of interest uh, within this this research and it's what's interesting is that overlaps with research in terms of autobiographical memory and I was just earlier this week I was at um, a conference on autobiographical memory where there there was a lot of people talking about the connections between that and thinking about the future um, and at a broad subjective level what links these together is that is what you'd call mental time travel so projecting yourself into a different time not the present but either thinking about the, the the past or the future now of course then mindfulness is more about focusing on the present <laughs> like, so um, um, i would say that it doesn't really matter how it works uh, if it works it should be embraced and then you can always work out later how exactly it works yeah but i think i think how it works is actually very important if you come back if we're, if we're thinking about the the neurobiology for example so i think i you know i would be of the view that with any drug or with any alteration of consciousness including psychotherapy that there's always some risk I, I think even you know going back to think about your childhood you know at a purely psychological level i mean you might end up remembering something that upsets you and then it kind of sets you off on a kind of a negative train of thought or whatever even you know even if you're not kind of taking drugs as an add-on or what have you but um in terms of how i think the question of how how drugs work is important because once you understand kind of the if you can understand the the kind of neurobiological properties or that maybe again that tie in with visceral things in the environment but if you can understand you know what's causing the positive effects and then what's causing any potential side effects so like you know even the you know the first line antidepressants of side effects ketamine has risks etc if you can start to tease apart if there are differences between the mechanisms that are causing the good stuff and that are causing the bad stuff then you can start to look into can we develop new pharmacological approaches mm. that kind of maximize the, some of the benefits while minimizing the risks and that i think that's been kind of a major interest within in pharmacology and that so, approach so can, towards can i just interject with it yeah. with this again maybe with a synthetic perspective which yeah. is so i i actually see a huge danger in that too because as you're saying of course if somebody has uh if you understand the neurobiology for example let's say of ketamine and someone has a specific genotype that if they take it they will die or have an inverse effect that's of use right sure sure but 
mindfulness is a really good example of a way in which um, uh, something has come from a non-scientific tradition, specifically Buddhism, and been deracinated. And so, for example, in Buddhism, you have lots of uh, traditions of meditation uh, and that kind of uh, detachment of the ego is only one. There's also things like Mata Bhavana, which is, you know, uh, lovefulness, if you like, and concentrating on uh, affect in a scientific way or love and depersonalizing in that sense. And what has happened now is mindfulness has been commodified. So you have corporations trying to get their uh, employees to be more mindful. You have um, meditation as a product, as a consumer good. Um, and, and I'm not criticizing it on the basis that you pay for it. I'm criticizing it on the basis that when you isolate it like that, many of the benefits diminish. There's a sense in which if we understand the chemical action of a drug, let's say ketamine, and we replicate it in another drug that has none of the psychological effects, we detach we lose much of the insightful aspects, which is better for the entire person. Uh, in the same way that if we studied exercise, and this has been done, people do this and they say, well, there's this much benefit to cycling and we'll have this exact series of steps and we'll create a program, a cognitive behavioral program around this kind of exercise and the person will do six steps and there is a health benefit, blah, blah. But they're losing all of the additional benefits that actually having real exercise uh, in a more organic sense to the whole person, to gaining uh, control over one's one's uh, agency, confidence because of the physical uh, adoption of a, of, a, of a new body, all of this kind of stuff. So when we, when we isolate things in science, it's great for observing and understanding. But then when we use that as a protocol for implementing our isolated research and ignoring the original context, too often uh, we lose the entire um, basis of, of so a really good example of that is in psychology and clinical psychology we've moved towards well we know this exact cbt intervention or we know this exact psychodynamic intervention for eight weeks or ten weeks can be proved to be effective with this body of patients therefore that will be implemented because that's and it's more about what we can replicate and measure than what's actually effective because what we know is that what's actually effective is to give the person what they specifically need on an individuated basis basis but that's harder to operationalize it's harder to mechanize it's harder to deliver as a measurable in an economic system geared around that so i'm arguing against this kind of very narrow measuring what the chemical does yeah. and replicating it i of. agree with you yeah of course and i would add uh, of course that uh, mystical aspect of the, the plant spirit uh, helping uh, as a helper spirit you know that when you work a lot with plants you start to get a sense of of this helper uh, aspect of the plant and uh, you can uh, you can ignore that, uh, but uh, for me it's there, and, and and I sense it, and I you know I can speak anecdotally about my own experience and um, why also I tried psychedelics when I started uh, trying them. Uh, at the time, I myself was depressed, and there was there was like an, a, a draw a call to to try this you know they came on my path i wasn't seeking them out uh, they came to me uh and somebody said you know have you tried uh, um, truffles or have you tried ayahuasca uh, truffles are a form of the mushroom uh, and I, I was like no but you know aren't you going to go schizophrenic or isn't there the danger of blowing up your mind and uh, no, no, you know, this is a uh, plant based. Just give it a try. And I gave it a try. And um, it basically I feel like it reset me and uh, I managed to get out of that depression uh, that I was in uh, because of the 
new perspective that I was uh, given uh, because uh, of suddenly I felt this connection with everything around me, with nature, with my family, with my friends, with the cosmos. I was shown uh, unbelievable, uh, you know, visions of hyperspace. And I was like, oh, my God, there is, you know, so much more than just this pedantic uh, life um, that materialists say, you know, no, you know, nihilism, like there's, there's nothing than what we can measure. And uh, you're nothing but a biological robot. And uh, you live and you eat and you die. And that's it. Tough luck. You know, it, it, that really got me down. And um the psychedelics helped me to get me out of that uh, very much. I think there's a really there's a really strong story that comes through, kind of a life a life story in in in, in what you're saying. And I think, I, in terms of kind of the, the the risk the risk you identify, Gareth, in terms of uh, when we try to understand the mechanisms in, in in greater depth, which I think is important, you can kind of lose that kind of narrative sense to what's happening. I think you know that's and you I think you draw on kind of the economic point, which is quite important that. Um, talking therapy kind of which works with people's narratives or people's life story is is more uh, labor intensive for professionals and therefore more expensive for like healthcare systems uh, so sometimes there's always that risk that people will try to go to a pharmacy first perspective that will kind of uh, lose some of the, this idea of, of talking therapy where people can actually work through people's life stories and where they can uh where you can can try and integrate things like you say to try and bring these these different perspectives together so if someone is if someone has that strong sense of spirituality that that can be kind of drawn into their their life narrative as well but research in psychotherapy again and again shows that it in um it's more important than the mechanism the style of therapy in in really in any population and in any client setting is the relationship between the person um being treated and the person treating them quote unquote whether they can achieve not even just empathy but a commonality and an, an understanding and a purpose and that's certainly been my experience in therapy you know i've had uh, psychodynamic therapy cbt uh Brugerian therapy and the the efficacy the effective moments were not the the therapeutic approach but they were in the room with me being able to see a a, a hope and and to get back to what alexander was saying there's there, i think there's a it's not really talked about very, very often but there's a crisis that really any bright person in the modern world encounters which is that our, our ideology uh is is profoundly nihilistic um not only that there is nothing beyond uh the material experience of the world but that there is no future that is different that is possible to this one or that is reasonable you know of course we can have all sorts of utopias but reasonably we, we never will we're far more likely if anything to have a dystopia and we imagine them in movies and video games all the time and they're great fun to play because they are experiencing fear without actually being present in the situation um but that's you know that that is profoundly nihilistic and a lot of people have a crisis in their in their late teens or early 20s um which results you know in in if not in suicide in a diminishment of their capacity to engage with the world productively and to have an experience um maybe it's a drug experience or maybe it's a completely different kind of experience maybe it's going to india and meditating or doing yoga but to have an experience which which offers something beyond that really nihilistic view i think is is not not only beneficial it's essential well you know the tantric saying that uh, one's happiness is directly related to one's embrace of the mystery uh, is that we need the mystery. We, we need this, this thing we cannot explain. I think it's very important for humans and for human psychology is that the moment you say, this is how it is and there's nothing else than this, uh, something dies uh, yeah. in us. Hope dies. And it's what Jordan Peterson talks about an awful lot as well. Uh, I don't want to quote Jordan Peterson, but 
Um, I think he's got a point. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a side effect of psychedelics is, is hope and wonder and amazement yeah. and mystery. And you say, okay, there is a 99.9% that I do not know, mm-hmm. but I'm going to kind of d- dive into that void, into that darkness that I don't know. It's, it's mm-hmm. the pool that you jump into before yeah. you tested the water. I guess know? as someone who works as a researcher, yeah, I'm always like, there's something of that in, in that kind of work or that kind of intellectual life where you're chasing after things that you don't fully understand or you're yeah i think i think jordan peterson is a great example of someone who in trying to describe the orange has forgotten how it tastes because he talks a lot about this this deeper richer experience but nothing about how he presents himself or articulates himself would present you with the idea that he has any of it and he seems entirely trying to very logically rationally create a systematic perspective and we could his politics aside and i certainly don't disagree with them but that's kind of irrelevant he he doesn't seem like someone who has really a lot of deep emotional healthy engagement with himself or other people we're calling you out jordan we're calling you out (laughs) debate us in real life (laughs) faces on the mic bitch but we were talking about this a little bit earlier about maybe there's a utility in in finding purpose and certainly someone like jordan peterson offers purpose but i I think it's very obvious that there's a darkness in in the absence of uh empathy in in his in his discourse anyway to me yeah absolutely and i see that uh uh, that that darkness is also descending on the Western world. That you know, we we don't have a vision anymore. We we used to marvel at ideas of the future. You know, we had the Tomorrowland, we had the Star Trek, and uh, <laughs> yeah. now you compare the old Star Trek to the to the current Star Trek. It's like uh, it's it's become very cynical and it's become very uh, dark in a way. Yeah, no longer like there's a there's a universe to explore, but this is the universe, and we'll fight war within that those uh, boundaries. Yeah. And that's what it's become now. Uh, I think that's it's deadly. Do you do you think that's behind the? I know because uh, we haven't talked about your work at all, but you 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 deal with narrative and myth and so on. Do, do you think that's the reason why these kind of superhero movies have become this huge narrative, uh, almost religious? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. So people talk about the popularity of superhero movies. And a few years ago, I would have been similarly cynical because a lot of these movies were very simplistic, very repetitive. But I think with the latest Avengers movie, which I saw recently, now it, like I'm not arguing that it's a great work of art or anything, but there is a complexity and a richness uh, to the universe depicted there that is up there with the Bhagavad Gita or the Bible. It, it is full of these great... Uh, heroic narratives which are all interconnected and, and work on multiple levels of meaning and have a visual richness that are that are like an iconic painting it, it it's gotten it's uh, i'm my my working theory is that it's replacing for a lot of people which i think is why they get so defensive when some, that someone makes a bad star wars movie it's yeah. not because they're bigoted it's because they're you know you're messing with the the this exegesis this truth that i'm seeking this yes. meaning in my life for 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 listeners, you should really see Gareth's hands moving like when he talks about this. It's amazing. It's my Italian. Uh, yeah, it's, it's when uh, George Lucas said that uh, Anakin Skywalker uh, was such a um, good Jedi because he had the what, what did he call them? The Metachlorians. Metachlorians, and that's when uh, Star Wars died at that very moment because it was all about the Force and about this mystery, that thing that you can you can maybe train and, and learn about and learn to use, but you can never understand and it penetrates all. And then this materialist idea comes in and boom, and the whole series went downhill. But George Lucas is a really great example of someone who lost a connection. When you watch his THX and American Graffiti, these are these are mystical films about uh, THX. It's about the absolute absence of human connection. And American Graffiti is about the 
pure connection pre-linguistic and then then he makes star wars which is this mythic thing and then everything he does after is completely empty of but i think he 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 listened very closely to joseph campbell and then and then forgot about him because uh it's just the first three star wars movies or four five and six are joseph campbell through and through uh, the monomyth you know and employing uh, basically uh, the psychology human psychology and story and overlaying uh, uh, the human uh, journey of, of seeking the answers and, and going into the, the mystical land and uh, uh, the unknown and coming back with a magical gift and uh, becoming the king uh, this hero's journey um, they employed it in the first three movies but then uh, went completely off course after that and so what marvel did was uh pick up on that and reintroduce it and just um the universe can't be big enough it's like more 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 there's like a hundred thousand dimensions and there's about 50 50 characters on the poster as well yeah (laughs) the bigger the better you know this is how this absolutely absolutely. and you mentioned working on 4d attractions and i would i would actually recommend this sounds ridiculous uh, i'm sure to many of our listeners but I would strongly recommend that you not only see the latest Avengers movie, but see it in 4D. I know it's offered in Cineworld here, <laughs> where the seat shakes, water sprays in your face, perfume is released. Honestly, because because what that's actually doing in in yeah, sure, these are all ridiculous interventions, right? But but it if you look at it from a psychological point of view, what it is doing is short circuiting the part of you that is critical yeah. and linguistic and letting you inhabit the journey of the the all it made me enjoy the film in a completely different way. And I was anticipating the action scenes, not because I was like Baba want to shaky, but because <laughs> I was able to be in it in a way that normally I'm just kind of I'm so bored by this action scene, it's doing nothing for me, it's just a distraction. There's probably a humor thing as well, just <laughs> In the fact that there is yeah. something kind of silly, and it makes perhaps it makes you a bit less less self conscious. Exactly, exactly. So you just because your drink is shaking all over your girlfriend, and you're <laughs> but both of you are so you know having such a good time that you yeah. who cares, you know. Well, everybody's become a film critic, you know, and uh, this is the age of comments on uh, on, <laughs> on the social media, yeah. And everybody's got an opinion, and everybody's a judge, and yes, so we need to be shaken out of that, and uh, <laughs> absolutely, I, you know, this is what I love about making 4D film. Uh, and and 3D, uh, you know, just 3D before that, <laughs> is uh, is that you can um, take people out of that analyzing mode. Hmm. We overanalyze ourselves and our world. I think. I, I think it, it also that I, I agree, but on a on a on a larger sense, um, you can see when you were talking about this earlier that there is a there is a new romanticism in the world, uh, and that that is you know the same romanticism that the that the nazis advocated uh, not to oh <laughs> well you know that this this pre-rational or anti-rational idea that there is a majestic post-reasonable. destiny post-reasonableism uh that trump say uh, appeals to uh, where where truth is irrelevant facts are irrelevant and it's only the great spirit of a nation's manifest destiny i know you know but crit- critical thinking can, it, it can be a bulwark against that as much as it can be a constraint on our on our on our well you need both obviously yeah you need your scientific analysis and you need your 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 drive view but you need romanticism and you need mysticism and you know uh, you need to be in wonder and in awe of the world but then also understand how it works and not get rid of all your scientific programs that's stupid and i I wonder how how we can synthesize that as a society because you know uh, part of the reason part of putin's ideology has come out of this guy alexander sulgan hi gareth here 
I am editing the podcast at the moment and I just wanted to interject to say I misspoke here quite badly. I said Alexander Suljan when I meant Alexander Dugan, two entirely different people. Alexander Suljan, of course, the inventor and synthesizer of MDMA and a well-respected biochemist, much beloved by the psychedelic community. Alexander Dugan is a Russian political philosopher, mystic and arguably a fascist. So please do not confuse the two as I understandably but reprehensibly did at this moment. Part of Putin's ideology has come out of this guy, Alexander Sulgin, um, maybe I'm mispronouncing that in Russia, who is a former chaos magician and has this kind of mythic, uh, uh, magical approach to, uh, he call, he has this idea about the Atlanteans and versus the, uh, the I forget the term, but, but sort of people who live on the coast. Is it Lemurians? Lemurians. And it, it, this is a very, you know, in one sense, it's a, wow, look at a, a return to a mystical vision of the world, but it's a profoundly nihilistic, genocidal uh, mystical vision. And that's, that side is present too. I think, as I, as I said, as a researcher, I think there's, um, there's just something about understanding, you know, that we are ignorant about most of how the world works and that, you know, perhaps there's something about science or inquiry or philosophy that can, that can give us people that sense of, in my life, I feel there's something that can give you a sense of direction to that to try and explore the world around you and try to understand it more whether it's from a materialistic perspective or maybe a more phenomenological sort of sure i think we we could benefit as a society from having i mean even the discussion we're having here i i'm I'm feeling profoundly uh enthused and engaged by it And, and this idea of a salon where people meet and discuss things and it's not exclusive because again not to harp on this but there is something about capitalism which segments so if if you're even even looking for public funding in a capitalist society you have to say who is this for what is its end? So I used to be involved in running Exchange Dublin, which was a collaborative arts centre. And that was anyone could come and anyone could do anything. And there is no way to articulate a vision like that. And there's a similar space in Dublin now, the clockwork door, where you pay by the minute to sit in the space. And the mere experience of having to pay by the minute, A, is exclusionary if you can't afford it. But B, means that you experience the space in a completely different, nervous, non-interactive way. And similarly, there are, uh, my, my friend Tom is, has launched a mental health initiative in Galway, which is bringing some of those experiences that we had in this collaborative consensus-based space into the mental health arena. But it is segmented and it is saying, you know, you are part of the crazy people, quote unquote. You go over to this space and have your experience where you all chat with each other and it might help and it's cheap to do, but it's not, you're not going to be interacting with the, the normies, you know, and, and there is something pathological about dividing experience and dividing, um, I, I forgot how I got into this but point. Isn't, isn't, uh, <laughs> but I think the, the creative uh, approach and the, the crazies, um, they try to also similarly uh explore and understand everything but they come at it from a completely different angle from an from an irrational angle from a chaotic angle try to uncover something that you didn't know you were looking for you know Mm. um so equally i think that the the crazies if you want to label them that um the freaks as they used to call uh people you know and i include myself in that label i'm just uh uh, are equally on this quest for knowledge and understanding but um go at it from a completely crazy angle <laughs> so the, the 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 aim is the same and um i think it's it's very interesting if you look at the um how how science the modern scientific method came to be uh during the renaissance it came out of magic and it came out of trying to uh understand uh completely 100 and control completely 100 our reality 
uh, and not just um, you know do a crazy dance and wave a magic wand around, but understand what is that thing that we're made of, and so that I can manipulate it mm. and, and Isaac make Newton it do what was I an want. Alchemist, you know, yeah. And William, J- like many of the many of the directions psychology has pursued are directly inspired by William James, who got to those ideas through nothing, through introspection, you know. And he he uh, uh, and not just William James, but um, uh, people like Borges, uh, who 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 imagined very accurately kinds of uh, neuroanatomy neuroanatomy and kinds of experience like in in the short story funes the memorius where he 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 understands this kind of uh, this he has this character who has a perfect memory and he understands exactly how that would preclude functioning and we now know that people who have this enhanced memory do have a, re- a diminished functioning and so so there's a lot of uh, what we think of as well we achieved this insight through this laborious process we're actually all, all, all people were doing was reading reading joseph campbell or or, or, or mm. reading borges or reading william james and then going on to create a research program inspired by those insights which were endogenous or, mm. or, or even you know related to psychedelics yeah, yeah no if, it's interesting when you look at uh, the origins of that abstract thinking uh, like uh, your Plato or Py- Pythagoras they had uh, they ran mystery schools and it was all a secret uh, what they were doing in there but it was all cultivating the mind knowledge uh, coming up with the scientific method in a way uh, trying to penetrate uh, the construct of what what is it that we're made of who am I the big question and I think uh, in their schools, psychedelics played uh, a significant role as well. Interesting. Uh, is there is there historic evidence for that? Or? Uh, there is some evidence. You know, uh, you have the um, the Ulyssian mysteries, if I pronounce it correctly, uh, where uh, it's not entirely clear what they were using, but uh, this was some kind of a, a secret uh, yearly orgy that would take place in ancient Greece. Uh, but people could only attend once in their lifetime and then never speak about it to anybody. Uh, but they all came out of it uh, enlightened, uh, deep philosophical thinkers, the, the builders of, of, uh, of, of Greece. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hypothesized that what they were ingesting is uh, magic mushrooms or uh, something similar to that. Um, because what they describe all the scribe is kind of this diving into the self, uh, into the mind, into inner space and um, understanding um, higher dimensional concepts of, of reality. So this is articulated really interestingly in Gore Vidal's um, book, Julian, where he talks about, now it's a fictional account based on the real diaries of the Emperor Julian, who was the last Hellenic Roman Emperor. He tried to, Christianity had already come in with Constantine and he tried to push it back. And the book is related by two philosophers, one of whom has a very mystical and also simultaneously cynical view. Um, he's kind of engaged in life and also mysticism. And the other is kind of a more rigorous, but also disengaged uh, academic. And they're recounting the life of this emperor who was a, a philosopher, but who was a mystic too, and who engaged with the the, the mystical tradition and ex- went on this exact, uh, how do you pronounce it? The Ulyssian Yul- mystery? He went, through, he went through the Ulyssian mystery and he keeps coming back to this as his motive for tolerance and rationality and pl- plurality. Like he wants there to be many gods and many religions and tolerance. And at the same time, the, the Christians are opening what he calls charnel houses where they have the, the, the bits of the bodies of their... Uh, their saints you know this weird creepy uh, death blood cult kind of thing 
So yeah, like many of our episodes, this has become kind of a, a talk about every <laughs> everything, the meaning of life itself. I think I think discussion is fractal. You know, though it, it, there is a sense in which everything is um, connected by everything else. And when you explore any topic in enough detail, you, you, there there are uh, things emer- connections emerge which are real, and uh, they're, they're to do with the the generative explorative way in which we. Uh, by thinking through analogies make new ideas and they're they're real and maybe there's a fundamental uh, aspect about not just cognition but the way the universe works in that sense i think something around psychedelics it would be good maybe to, to go through is like if, where people the whole idea of set and setting and if if someone were hypothetically trying out psychedelics like what uh, what kind of things are best kind of in, to ensure that any kind of risks are kind of minimized like yeah, let's take let's take on the the good breast and and, and give people some some uh, some useful advice what if someone was hypothetically to to take a uh, so I, I think set yeah yeah well a set and setting absolutely set. uh, but i would advocate a set and setting that is in no way distracting so to be on your own in the dark with the phone disconnected and the door locked um and to uh, fast beforehand one two days and to meditate uh properly before you ingest the psychedelic so that you are in a completely uh with yourself and with no external voices or influences or distractions um, that that would be my and that's for any any psychedelic uh yes i would say so um that something like mdma uh, of course is more of much more of a social thing so you you'll probably break open the door to find somebody to hug and uh, (laughs) to love but uh uh, yes uh, especially something like ayahuasca or uh, uh, you know high dose uh, mushrooms uh, five dried grams or more um definitely uh, I would do that in, uh, in in quiet darkness on my own. That's interesting. I'm surprised to hear you say that because, uh, you know, so many people advocate having a sitter, being around people who've had an experience before. And you, you... Yeah, I certainly, in, yeah, in terms of kind of the research guidelines, yeah, they would be quite, yeah, they'd be quite distinct from that. So in terms of any research that's been done, um, yeah, usually in terms of set and setting, you would want to typically would say to have kind of a reassuring kind of calm atmosphere and um, but it would usually be uh it would be considered best practice to have at least kind of two people kind of there just to kind of to supervise just to make sure if, if someone does kind of have any upsetting experience maybe for that a first there time. to reassure them maybe a first time to work with a sitter so that because there's a point where you you, you don't exist anymore or you think you're nothing is real um you might be tempted to jump out the window or something like that. But what, once you've been through your first experience, uh, then I would recommend you explore, really explore your inner verse and do the do the dark method. I think there's always kind of physiological risks, like with uh, blood pressure, for example, ketamine with ketamine trials, depending on the dose. Like it would be um, monitoring blood pressure, for for example. Yeah, so I suppose the the bad trip is something that that is probably in the back of people's minds when they think about psychedelics. So you know, if if they're having this psychedelic experience, they can have this kind of very um, say anxiety inducing kind of experience where they they see kind of things that are upsetting to them or they have a very negative emotional reaction to it. Yeah, so so you had a perspective on the existence or non-existence of bad trips. Well, uh, yeah, what people call a bad trip, I would call um, a trip where you're confronted with your shadow, with your demons, with your darkest fears, 
and uh, this is probably because uh, you're um, not dealing with those demons and you're trying to hide away from them and on psychedelics you're confronted with these things quite easily um, whenever uh, I'm on a trip and I'm confronted with uh, a, a scary demon or something like that I um, embrace it and I try to integrate it immediately. What's, uh, what, what kind of form? What, what's that like, that experience? It, does it look literally like a, a demon or what? Kind it, can, of? it can be. Or you can uh, suddenly find yourself uh, in, a, in a place that's like the, the paintings uh, of hell, you know, something like that. Uh, and you're like, OK, I don't want to be here. I don't need to be here. So then um, you start singing, for example. Or you just uh, fly away to uh, to a nicer place, but these are places that um, exist in our subconscious, or maybe exist in hyperspace somewhere. Um, and you can go there, or you cannot go there. You know, you, uh, so you feel you have some control if you're if a trip is kind of becoming bad in that way. You you would still, in your experience, you have some agency to kind of move yes. into a better kind of mind if space. You, if you feel too too weak to uh, to 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 take yourself, you can ask for help. Um, for example, from the from the spirit guide in the plant or other spirit guides, mm. and uh, lo and behold, uh, in come the uh, angels or whatever you want to call them and help you to get out. But you say, I mean, you say this as someone who's a fairly seasoned, experienced kind of uh, who who has a lot experience with this. Like, if someone were a novice, do you think they would? Well, find it more difficult to control where they're kind of yeah. going subjectively. So then, so then, set and setting. Um, are helpful if it is a very positive setting see if you're in silent darkness mm. then you are confronted easily with these things mm. okay yeah if you're in a very warm setting it's light you have candles you have flowers um maybe uh, your your friend or or um somebody else is there to help you yeah just to reassure you yeah then uh, you're probably um not very likely to go to places like that but you see uh, i'm quite interested in in these places as well because mm. they are a part they're in there you know and mm. uh, i want to explore and integrate and uh, i'm in quite a union in that respect so this could be kind of the more hard therapeutic work of yeah like it's like okay yeah. let's face this demon let's call him out and let's see what am i scared of what am i so afraid of here oh is that it well okay that's great now we've processed that <laughs> maybe that's the dutch side of me but uh, no, but I, I think that that i mean we we very often we get hung up on the um the more research-based aspects of psychology but certainly from a psychotherapeutic point of view pain is a signal and encountering negative emotions is part of the process of of developing past them certainly in the psychodynamic model there's absolutely no possibility for insight or improvement um without experiencing the not suffering so much as the 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 presence of the pain that's with us all the time but we're, we're refusing to experience and i guess if, no matter what your perspective on the psychedelic experience if you are uh, examining new or unexamined aspects of yourself you're going to encounter um trauma and, and that could be personified as a demon or it might just be a, hor hor a horrendous memory of something awful coming back to you and, and the the way to deal with that is not to try to escape it by you know chasing a high but to accept it um i think that's common to all kind of philosophies really that it, there's an element of inacceptance of transcendence yeah no and and the thing about psychedelics is uh an important element of it is not just a, a, a party high. It, the word high is good. Uh, 
it's 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 a lot of it is therapy and it's you know um it's not just all oh, pretty colors although it can be that but the moment you start taking higher doses it it becomes a therapy session very quickly <laughs> i suppose the other risk which is a lot less common than those kind of upsetting aspects we'll call it upsetting aspects of, of trips <laughs> uh would be kind of the 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 risk which is i think is is, is quite un, improbable or unlikely unlikely to happen uh, but is uh, of a more lasting kind of psych- psychosis uh, post uh, consumption of psychedelics so I mean I think it was alluded to pre- previously that uh, in this uh, podcast that, um, that people with say a family history of, of schizophrenia or people at higher risk of that kind of that kind of psychosis certainly in a research context would be excluded from from taking part in research in in, uh, in that area so although it's it, there, it, there haven't been many reports of it happening it is something that that would that is that there is some risk of and some some of that comes i think out of the so the bad side of the lack of methodological rigor in in the 1960s um and actually in preparation for this i read someone's thesis which is sort of a history of of psychedelic research so he talked a lot about how um what what happened in a lot of these early studies was that people were taken on without any kind of rigor and in other words it was very difficult to estimate whether when somebody would have a schizophrenic episode in the months after taking a psychedelic, whether they were had a propensity for it beforehand or were going to anyway or had before. And it seems it seems now that the actual risk of, say, a sch- schizophrenic break of becoming psychotic is actually very minor. Uh, obviously, if you do have a history of mental illness, you need to be very careful taking any drug for example if you're uh, bipolar taking an antidepressant can lead to a a manic cycle um and that's the kind of you know messing with your neurochemistry when there are issues with your neurochemistry in the first place is problematic and of course any existing if you're currently taking any any kind of psychoactive medications or taking other kind of drugs then again clearly that's uh you know, that could, that could end up being bad news if you're not. Yeah. So so something I wanted to raise, um, which is something a little different, um, and it's it's actually, to be, to be very kind of straightforward, it's the reason that I don't take psychedelics currently, uh, which is that, so for my personal uh, medical situation is that I have um, uh, insomnia and sleep apnea, and so I'm kind of chronically sleep deprived. So what I find is if I have any kind of experience like that, the all of the stuff that i'm keeping down the the somatic experience the suffering of of being deprived of sleep becomes incredibly uh, prevalent and overtakes any kind of uh, exploration or joy or um, more um spiritual or, or intellectual it just becomes a kind of a suffering experience and that's certainly not uh nothing i would recommend and not not i think there's there's healthy suffering and unhealthy suffering you know and there's the kind of pain which is that you become aware of a pain and as i was saying earlier it's a signal and you're addressing it and then there's the oh, I didn't notice that my leg was bleeding and now it's all I can think about, uh, which is probably less useful. Okay, well, then then don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody's forcing you. No, sure, sure. no but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a good point. It's a good point to bring up. Yeah, it does. Uh, you can get caught in, uh, in thought loops and uh, in that sort of, you start to focus on one thing and before you know it, that's all you're thinking about and uh that can be very unpleasant and then you need an external stimuli stimulus to get you out of it and and that i think that the fact that that these drugs are prohibited in our society people used to talk about paranoia with marijuana and nobody talks about it anymore cannabis anxiety uh because a large part of the extent of paranoia that you would feel as a 14 year old casually smoking cannabis or whatever is 
this fear of the big other, the authority, be it the parent or the police, literally punishing you. For using the drug. For using the drug, <laughs> yeah. And, and But that's something that's, that still exists and is prevalent. Oh, yeah. I would say that with, with, with heavy psychedelics and, and big use, uh, I wouldn't recommend it for anybody under the age of 30, say. You need to have a very strong uh, mental constitution, uh, a, a strong framework mentally strong um you know be in a healthy place um because all this shit's gonna come up and if you're very young and uh you don't have that kind of background and understanding because what i found is that my uh my spiritual understanding already um my and my mystical background gave me a lot of um handle on the sort of imagery that i was presented with in my first trip mm-hmm. Uh, and and I was very uh, comforted because I recognized a lot of it already. Maybe that is purely that it's uh, activating something that I know already, of course. But um, um, it wasn't bewildering to me. Um, it was it was beautiful and confirming to me. And I can imagine that if you're a compla- you know a young fourteen year old or fifteen year old, and you would take uh, ayahuasca, that. Uh, I don't know what what you would make of all of this and whether that's very constructive or helpful for for young people. I um and that that's part of again we talked about the prohibition and the the part of the reason why that was um there was a moral panic around psychedelics uh for sure in the United States but al- also a lot of people were taking them you know in in extremely uh unsafe ways people who were living um essentially lives of homelessness in, in the cities in, like, hate ashbury is the classic example where you have people living in a squat but it's not in a sort of a safe squat that they've out it's, living a very precarious life where they've run away from their parents in an emotionally traumatized and traumatizing situation then taking a large dose of psychedelic also in an unsafe situation with potential sexual violence and stuff so this, the that was leading people to you had the classic case of the acid burnout someone who's had not necessarily too much but had really n- dangerous experiences around these drugs and i think so some some of the over the societal overreaction and of course we all know now that richard nixon was like how can i get rid of the hippies and the blacks well you know the blacks take heroin so at the time you know so to prohibit that the hippies take weed so we'll prohibit that and we'll enforce those selectively but but also some of it was people were getting damaged because they were in a damaging and damaged situation and then they were opening themselves up if you like taking away the ego taking away those protections that we have and becoming deeply traumatized so so much of it is about having a safe healthy understanding and situation you know yeah it's not a party drug for certain yeah uh, i i look at what happened in the 60s with lsd and uh, i scratch my head yeah it's it that went horribly wrong in many cases and uh um was interesting at one of the meetings um of the psychedelic society of ireland uh there was a skype call with dennis mckenna uh terence mckenna's brother and the question was asked by somebody in the audience, um, you know, what can we do better this time with the current renaissance of psychedelics uh, to not have the same situation happen again that happened in the 60s with LSD and how that all, um, uh, you know, um, fizzled out and didn't didn't lead to the kind of cultural revolution or spiritual revolution that that, that we thought it was going to be. And uh, he didn't quite have an answer to that. I think we've, as a society, haven't asked that question yet properly. And we don't have answers to that either. And you bring up some very important points about um, availability and maybe screening and or support. What kind of circumstance should people be 
taking uh, psychedelics or not, or, mm-hmm. you know. And, and for me, I mean, I, I, that came across like I was criticizing psychedelics. I really am criticizing society in the sense that we have a society less so than in the 60s, much less so. But certainly people can be in very unsupported circumstances in, in, in general. And maybe the reason Dennis McKenna didn't have an answer for you is because he's off in Etelan uh, living this wonderful existence, which is created by ethnobotany. And may- many of his experiences were probably much more positive. And there are very many positive experiences, be they creative or spiritual, that people have had. So maybe that's not a question that he's had to answer. You know, But when you open the door wider then you know it's like the there's a ter- there's a phrase on the internet uh, the eternal september i don't know if you're f- familiar with this and it, what it what it is is to do with when the early internet um became publicly available uh, it, this happened a few times it happened when uh, the bulletin boards became more publicly available in the the mid 1980s and it happened again when people got the web in the the mid to uh, 90s uh, where suddenly there was all of this very uh, a lot of academics a lot of artists a lot of intellectuals were online having these great discussions having very idealistic situations then the doors opened and the web becomes commodified corporatized and full of people who are just talking horrible shit at each other uh, so there's a sense of which sure when all of this stuff is you know in groups of insightful and interested people it's safe and then if you sell it at the corner store you know it's the kids who 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 throw something exit the bus who are suddenly sitting in a circle in in an attic dosing themselves and that's a very different situation Uh, but it's not a criticism of psychedelics it's just about how we treat people in society but it's happening now Uh, the renaissance is happening and we have to discuss this as a society how what are we doing different this time to make sure that that doesn't happen or I don't know how to, how, how to regulate that. I don't have an answer to that, but um, I'm open to the discussion. I think it's very important to have that discussion. Personally, I, I would favor support rather than regulation because regulation is just and always and ever a means of control. And once you have a means of control, you have all of these uh, purposes that it's serving that aren't the original purpose. Um, whereas if you support people, if you provide places where people can go or contact when they have plan are planning to or have had a psychedelic experience or are having one that will support them and protect them whether those be civil things or they be you know just like groups uh, supporting people or they be governmental support that kind of thing is helpful whereas saying you know here's your license and your test to take psychedelics is less useful because you're still having prohibition people will still do it anyway and it's also who gets to decide how you pass that test it's like voting sure the world would be better if only the enlightened voted but every time you introduce a test for that suddenly the dictator gets to decide who's enlightened you know so it's a problem yeah 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 whereas with voting and um, uh, military budgets there's actually quite lethal uh, potentially to the whole planet so uh maybe there should be much more focus on that <laughs> than on uh, legalizing cannabis or not <laughs> well so i think we're going to head towards the end is i know we've so much more we didn't get to talk about especially your creative work so if you want to tell us a little bit about that before you finish and how it's been informed by psychedelia maybe that would be good uh well whether my work is informed by psychedelics um um you know so i've been working in in animation uh since i graduated as an animation uh, student in uh, in 2000 so uh, 18 years of creative work uh and so tapping into the muse and into that creative space already uh but as as uh, animation is also very technical so i kind of bridge the creative and the technical every day in in, in work 
Um, and so my focus is on, on animation production and then specifically 3D stereoscopic and now 4D um, right film animation. And I do, this is international work. So, um, you know, I can work from Dublin, but uh, the, the right be somewhere in America or production be in India or whatsoever. Uh, psychedelics, uh, you see, uh, I try to incorporate uh, some of the messages of, uh, you know, unity and uh, cosmic consciousness and multidimensionality, uh, you know, boundary dissolving ideas, uh, ideas of um, look further than just uh, your own backyard, you know, um, come together, uh, think, try to figure out what's going on, try to figure it out for yourself, communicate, you know, these kind of uh, just very common messages, really. But uh, what the psychedelics uh, tell me constantly is, is, is those messages like look further, look further afield, don't stop here. This is just 1% of, of what there is. And basically, the other 99%, uh, there's another 9,999% beyond that. I know that's a nonsense thing to say, but, you know, everything is possible. It's boundless. It's endless. And we, have, we mustn't limit ourselves. And that's something that, of course, I try to put into my animation work. And especially children's uh, animation is very formulaic because, uh, you know, there's a lot of money investment money behind it and they want to make sure that a certain audience is going to pick it up and buy all the toys that are made as a result of these movies and tv shows and so it's all very very uh, predictable and uh, quite limited and narratively not very enhancing or enriching and uh, this is something as an animation producer i, I try to expand i try to give children more uh, in the stories, in the characters, integrate more Joseph Campbell, integrate more shamanistic ideas or crazy spiritual ideas or maybe uh, quantum mechanics, uh, you know, anything to, 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 to wake up maybe at that part that's asleep in humanity right now. And, and on, on that point, I, I forgot to mention earlier, uh, I just noticed that Joseph Campbell's um, TV series where he's interviewed I think it's an eight part series is now on Netflix and I think that that's a much better introduction than say reading the hero with a thousand faces or something which can be very dry and in hot in the Holly in Hollywood terms in writing terms and um, people break this down and it becomes very methodological very very rigorous and not very interesting and repetitive and so, but if you listen to the guy speak it's a much more it's like reading Freud or something it's a much more interconnected uh, deep uh, subtle empathic way of thinking about things than just sort of here is a here is a, a series of arcs that I that I figured out are in myths yeah. and you should apply this to your writing well, Netflix is fantastic for uh, that sort of content but also uh, they have some psychedelic uh, documentaries on there like DMT the spirit molecule uh, being the most famous one uh which which uh features joe rogan actually <laughs> speaking about dmt um but uh, netflix is great because uh you know they're not uh, limited by uh national rules or uh so much uh, they're not afraid of uh investors walking away uh they can just uh show what they want and they're also interested in psychedelics like the uh, ceo of, of netflix was talking about the future uh for netflix and he said something akin to a psychedelic experience would be um, uh, something he could envision and exactly how technically that's going to work 
he hadn't figured out yet, but I have some ideas about that. I can uh, certainly help him out. <laughs> <laughs> as do I, as do I. Um, so, Andrew, any closing thoughts? Um, I don't know. Do science all the time. <laughs> science harder. Okay, thank you very much. If you'd like to uh, hear other episodes of the program, they're all available um, on pretty much any podcast app itunes or any local podcast app just search for dead medium uh, for this podcast feed or gareth stack and you'll find it and you can find uh, all the episodes also up at garethstack.com or on soundcloud and um, my twitter is uh, my name gareth stack andrew your twitter is uh, ap allen one and uh, alexander do you, do you have a blog that you want to uh twitter 5dlux.blogspot.com check it out is is the one that talks mostly about all these subjects thank you so much for listening